Okay, I've always been confused, so I want to hear it from an actual astromycologist. Should I pronounce <laughs> the word fungi as fungi or fungi, or how do, how do you pronounce it? It depends on every person's mood, I guess. It, it really <laughs> doesn't matter. So I sometimes I also say it differently when I'm speaking in English. I say fungi or fungi, and then aspergillus niger. But if I speak in Portuguese, I say, yeah, fungi and aspergillus <laughs> so it really it really doesn't matter all right i think there's right. no correct one there's no correct one okay so i'll just yeah, say fungi yeah. and and then aspergillus niger that's right that's, that's uh, also good yeah okay yeah okay <laughs> well <laughs> this is going to be an adventure <laughs> Hey everyone, welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. As always, this is Mike Wall. The Star Trek show that served as the impetus for starting this podcast was Star Trek Discovery, which premiered six years ago in 2017. I remember listening to all sorts of other Star Trek podcasts at the time, Everyone was speculating about the plot and the characters, going frame by frame to talk about the costumes and the starships. But no one was mentioning the cool science that was being depicted in the show. So I decided, why not me? I knew a bunch of astronomers and planetary scientists who could comment on binary stars and protoplanetary disks, as well as geobiologists who could speak to the search for biosignatures and how DNA works. But something that was always missing was an astromycologist to talk to about the mycelial network. Well, almost six whole years of podcasting, and still no episode about the mycelial network. Until now. Our guest today, Dr. Marta Cortisau, is a junior researcher in the Aerospace Microbiology Research Group at the German Aerospace Center, or DLR. Marta is quite literally a real-life astromycologist. Her expertise is in how fungi survive and thrive in space conditions, and how they can serve future astronauts on long-duration spaceflight missions. Today we present a special edition of Strange New Worlds that Marta and I recorded at a panel for Virtual TrekCon last month. That panel had a visual component to it too, so there will be a moment in today's show where we'll be referencing some figures that Marta is screen sharing. But rest assured, if you're listening to this on your podcast app, Marta explains things sufficiently well that you won't be missing out. That said, if you do want to see her fantastic fungal photos, then check out the link to the YouTube version of this podcast in the show notes, where you'll also find links to a few of her research papers. Now, without further ado, let's jump straight into the action. Hello, Virtual TrekCon. My name is Mike Wong. I'm an astrobiologist and a planetary scientist at the Carnegie Institution for Sciences Earth and Planets Laboratory in Washington, D.C. And I'm also the host of Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. On this very special Virtual TrekCon edition of Strange New Worlds, we are joined by a super special guest, Dr. Marta Cortesal, a real-life astromycologist psychologist working at the German Aerospace Center. Marta Cortesal, welcome to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. Hello, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's so great to be able to interview you about your work, uh, which we'll get to very shortly. But the first thing that I always like to ask my guests on Strange New Worlds is about their relationship to Star Trek. So Marta, tell us about your relationship to Star Trek. So my relationship to Star Trek started very early. It was kind of this family thing uh, that we would watch Star Trek, uh, you know, all together in the living room. And it started pretty early that I understood I really liked sci-fi and I really liked especially Star Trek where they would go to other worlds and explore them. 
And I think that definitely had to do something about my career choice because, yeah, I mean, I ended up being a scientist that is exploring something else uh, outside in space. So, yeah, it's it's a very it's very close to my heart, Star Trek, actually. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, I, I feel exactly the same way. Um, you know, I grew up watching it with my family and I have no doubt that it influenced my career choice. Um, it's cool to meet people who grew up in different parts of the world who have similar experiences with Star Trek. You're from Portugal originally, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, that's so wonderful to, to hear that Star Trek is this sort of like unifying force around the globe and you can meet like-minded people uh, who share a love and passion for Star Trek and science. Yeah, even on the other side of the world. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So today we're going to talk about astromycology, which is your focus of study that you know, translates to fungi in space, astro being space, mycology being the study of fungi. Before we get into the fun space part, um, I want to make sure that everybody listening to this and watching this knows what fungi are. So Marta, what are fungi? Yeah, so fungi, I think maybe if you say the word fungi or fungi, people get a bit confused, but it's actually uh, very simple. We know them from our everyday life. You have mushrooms, which maybe are the easiest ones to identify as fungi. Then you have yeasts, which are the things we use to make our bread, right? Or our beer. And then you also have mold, which is also a fungi, and the mold you have in your oranges if you leave them out too long or uh, in your bathroom <laughs> because there's, <laughs> there's too much moisture. So fungi are actually these, these microbes. We, we classify them as microbes even though we can actually see them, right? Most of them we can see them with our eyes. Uh, but they are actually microbes that uh, have really complex cells. So they're not so close to bacteria, for instance. They're actually very close to animals, to us, which is even more exciting to think that a mushroom or a mold can actually be close to humans. Yeah, that is kind of mind-blowing. And as you mentioned, they they seem very important to our everyday lives. They're influential in creating the food that we eat. They also degrade things uh, that we produce. In what other ways are fungi super important to the world? And why do you find them so important to study? So I think it's important to understand that fungi are everywhere, like really everywhere. Uh, this is something I didn't really fully comprehend when I started researching. But it's it's like you said, like they contribute to biodegradating, like the rest of biomass of organic material that we are and fruit is, for instance. And they actually bring back this organic material into an available form, into nutrients that the plants can take and restart the life cycle. So they're very key players in the whole cycle of life in our planet. And other things that people might also not know, like when you think about fungi, well, besides mushrooms being like an important source of food and other interesting compounds, right? Um, then you also get mold that is actually being used in biotechnology to produce antibiotics, pharmaceuticals, vitamins, even plastics they can produce. So yeah, one thing you find fungi everywhere, you know, you breathe in the air, there's, there's fungal spores. There's no way you cannot breathe them in. And yeah, and they are very much able to participate in all sorts of different processes from biotechnology to degrading, you know, plants. It's it's incredible. Yeah, they're everywhere, um, even in Star Trek. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> central to the plot of Star Trek Discovery is this thing called the mycelial network. And I guess the best way to describe the mycelial network is like a highway through subspace that connects distant regions of space such that if you have a spore drive, this technology that they've invented in Star Trek, you can jump from one location to another instantaneously through the mycelial network. Now, I've read um, in various press releases and stories and interviews with the writers of Star Trek Discovery that the mycelial network in Star Trek is loosely based off of this idea that fungi are known to produce something called the mycorrhizal network here on Earth. So uh, what are these real-life mycorrhizal networks? <laughs> very good question. Yeah, I mean, in that sense, I was very excited when, when I saw Star Trek really digging into the fungi world. 
I mean, first of all, yeah, an astromycologist, like a scientist that actually portrays my job in Star Trek. I was like, <laughs> oh my God, my dream of life has come true. Yeah. But yeah, that, that part of scientifically Star Trek got that very right in the sense that it really took what fungi are able to do in the real world. So what happens is that if you see a forest, we know very well that trees grow roots that expand very deep underground and they branch out and they create this crazy network of roots. But what people sometimes don't really understand, which is normal, right? Because we don't really live underground, is that fungi are always there as well. They are the best buddies of plants, of trees. So the same way that trees have roots, fungi also have roots that branch out and expand. And these roots are kind of like the, you know, maybe the, the streets or the, the, also the highways, like the other lanes of the highway besides the roots of the plant. And they are also very much helping the plants connect to each other. And this happens in, you know, in an extension that is very vast. It can be uh, meters or even hundreds of meters, and and they help plants communicate with each other. They help them, you know, transport nutrients and all of these things. Even detect like if there's a a bad microbe, a pathogen attacking one plant on one side, then they can send chemical signals to the other plant to start producing compounds that will attack this this pathogen. So, yeah, these mycorrhizal networks are kind of like the you know, the plants and the fungi, they have a symbiont relationship and they create vast networks. Uh, but the important thing is that they are never alone. They're always together. They work together, plants and fungi. Oh, that's such a beautiful sentiment. And it really gets to the heart, I think, of the idea that the mycelial network helps connect very distant places in space so that, you know, you're never alone. You can always, uh, you know, go and find out what what's out there in Star Trek. That's that's really cool. You know, in Star Trek, starships travel through the mycelial network. Um, but I think in the, these mycorrhizal networks, it's it's not quite so fancy. There, there are no starships going <laughs> through yet. them. But, <laughs> but like, like you said, th there are very important things that traverse these mycorrhizal networks here on Earth, from chemicals to nutrients to signaling molecules. Tell us a little bit more about this exchange. What are the, some of the ways that uh, plants and uh, fungi talk to one another and through each other? Yeah, so one of the ways is, is how I said, so they, they can actually, they are connected chemically, right? They, there's, there's like a lot of, uh, it's not like a separating, you know, one cell is here and one other cell is here. Like they're actually, uh, it's a network, but it has a lot of things like a goo outside, right? So it's, all of this is kind of a matrix <laughs> now we're mm. almost getting to another uh, cool movie uh, you also get you also get into this matrix that that is all connected so even if you think of a highway it's a bit more than that because a highway is like you can only go through there and there's nothing happening uh, outside but there's a lot of incoming uh, traffic for instance and there's a lot of uh, molecules that, that can actually travel all these distances and, and keep the communication. And one of the most important things is what I mentioned is this ability to communicate when there's a stressful situation. For instance, that if one plant is being attacked, then the information can travel fast through the signaling molecules and to the other plant, which even affects the way they express their genes. Like, oh, no, we need to fight against this pathogen. So... That for me, it's like the, the most interesting part that they can actually work as a team. And if you see one tree, you would never imagine that it's somehow communicating with the other tree, but the fungi also uh, help them do that. Yeah, that's amazing. You know, these mycorrhizal networks, to me, really speaks to this concept of interconnectedness between exactly. all the living things here on Earth, which is another really beautiful sentiment. I was wondering, as a person who studies these phenomenal life forms, these fungi, has it impacted the way that you perceive life on Earth or just life in general, like what it means to be alive? Definitely. I mean, I was pretty new when I started um, researching. I was pretty new to fungi themselves. So I, I think it's normal, scientists, especially biologists. There's like different things. In the 60s, they were very into bacteria and bacteria were the new amazing things. Antibiotics, let's go for it. But then they somehow transitioned to fungi because they were like, mm, there's antibiotic resistance. We need to 
search a little bit more and then they suddenly okay now we have all these molecular tools these new technologies that allow us to see the, the dna and the genome and then fungi started going deeper and everyone studying uh, studying fungi way more and when i got to there uh to studying fungi i was very impressed because everything i started you know digging deeper and everything i read there was a fungi being mentioned or some molecule like pigments, melanin. And I was like, wait a minute, fungi have this, you know, or antibiotics, wait a minute, fungi have this, you know, fungi had everything across these different parts and areas that are important for our society, industry. And like we, we talked about like the, the ecology of the forests and all, even in your backyard, in your grass, in your flower pot, you have fungi there. And the whole life cycle thing that they are actually very useful for us because we all, okay, let's go uh, philosophical, but we're all going to die, right? And then we need to somehow, <laughs> we are made of stuff and organic material and this will somehow like nature recycles all of that and recycles it through the means of fungi. And yeah, so there's no way of now not how uh, to be impressed by fungi and and then you find out they're actually in the space station and and then your mind is actually blown away <laughs> yeah i know it's just so amazing to think about how it's not just you know these trees that they connect to each other they, that they influence through their mycorrhizal networks they also influence human society so much um through like you said the development of um useful molecules that we use in in our uh, antibiotics and uh, you know the various other ways as as food stuff as um, psychedelics you know that they, yeah. they just like really are a, a part of us and that we are a part of them too are very intertwined through our co-relationship with these uh, with these fungi and then of course yeah the the decomposing aspect how they recycle everything you know I I, I don't I'm not an ecologist, but I can imagine that the uh, recycling of of nutrients throughout the biosphere would just be so much less efficient if it weren't for these uh, fungi performing that uh, ecological niche. Yeah, and I, maybe we will get to that later, but also in space, this is a key feature, right? If we're going to live in space for a long period of time, we also need to recycle our waste and our things. Oh, yeah, yeah. I can't wait to hear about that. Yeah. Um, but before we get there, let's turn back to Star Trek for a second. So uh, I know that in Star Trek Discovery, it's mentioned that the specific species of fungi that powers this spore drive technology is the Prototaxites stella viatori. Uh, now, I, I know that Prototaxites is actually a real fungus, isn't it? Yeah, it's actually a real fungus, although it's it's not really alive right now. It's like lived from a very ancient period called the Devonian, like 400 million years ago. Oh, and wow. it was one of the, the first gigantic fungi that actually dominated that the whole, not the whole planet, but at least uh, North America. And it is uh, like one of the first fungi that people were really intrigued about uh, because it was so big. And it it really I think it's interesting that that Star Trek writers actually took that one to be the you know the spore drive kind of connecting everything, but yeah it's a very interesting fungus. Of course, this specific one, the Stella viatori, it's not it's not existing. It was a different one, but I think it's also very cool the name because Stella stars right and viatori like a way to the stars. So it's actually very cool that they that they give him that name. Him yeah. or it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Very aptly named, indeed. Uh, another thing that the Star Trek writers took or were inspired by was a mycologist named Paul Stamets. Um, this uh, was the person who uh, inspired the uh, the person who, I guess, discovered the mycelial network and invented the spore drive, Paul Stamets, Lieutenant Paul Stamets in Star Trek Discovery. So the writers named uh, Lieutenant Paul Stamets after this real life mycologist, Paul Stamets. Um, and so I've always wondered uh, until now, but never knew an actual astromycologist to ask this to, is Paul Stamets, the, the actual mycologist, a big name in the field of fungal science? And uh, what do you know about him? Yeah, so I actually don't know so much about him besides what I, you know, has uh, Star Trek came along. I also did some did some research. But the fungal world is very vast. Like there's a lot of different types of fungi to study. 
And and there's also something very interesting, I think, in the fungal world. You get you get a lot of people naturally interested in that. So the fungus, like the mushrooms, everyone has kind of a tendency to pick mushrooms and then they explore and they explore the psychedelics out of the mushrooms. And and Paul Stamets is a very good example of that, of what we call a citizen scientist, you know, that, that just naturally is interested and goes and explores. So it's not necessarily like he has a research group and is a principal investigator or any, any of these things. It's kind of an alternative path to to becoming a scientist and an explorer. Um, but it, it's, again, like a very different field, for instance, the one that I'm taking right now, which is a bit more traditional, let's say, right, like in academia. And, and so it's it's a bit different, uh, the path that, that we have been taking. But it's very interesting anyway to think that, you know, if you are curious about a topic, that you can go and you can pursue it. And that's, I think, the the best. Now, we actually got to meet the actor who portrays Paul Stamets on Star Trek Discovery. His name is Anthony Rapp. Uh, and we met him when he came to give the keynote talk at the 2019 Astrobiology Science Conference in Seattle, Washington, uh, which was just absolutely amazing, like that, that, that the NASA folks would invite him to come and give that talk and join us at a, a real-life professional scientific conference. As I recall, you even asked him a question at his... His talk it must have yes. been so thrilling <laughs> to meet him yeah. to tell him hi i'm an actual astromycologist uh just like you <laughs> but the real yeah. version of you um so yeah tell me what you remember about that event yeah i remember it being the best day ever because i was so excited <laughs> i remember seeing the program of of the conference and i saw that there was this keynote by anthony rapp and i was like oh my god i need to be there but then at the same time, I was traveling from Germany where I did my PhD and I was traveling all the way to the US and, and my plane landed like two hours before. And I was like, oh, my God, I cannot be late to this. So I remember being uh, extremely nervous, extremely excited and also extremely jet lagged. <laughs> I went directly to the conference venue, no stop in the hotel. There was no time for that. And then when I got the chance to make a question, of course, I was very nervous, but I was also very impressed because Henry Rapp was just like, oh, really? You're all like you study fungi in space. That's awesome. I'm like, yeah, isn't that awesome? And I remember I even gave uh, him one of my mugs because I have like some mugs with I love space microbiology. And <laughs> oh, so great. that was that was great. The, the chance to to meet someone, you know, connected to the Star Trek that just, you know, Living in Portugal, and I was born and raised there, you kind of have, uh, you know, this feeling that anything American, like, it's very far away, like, it's literally on the other side of, of the world for us. And we have all, all this access to series and movies, and we actually watch them in the original version, so no dubbing or anything. So we have a lot of connection to that. But of course, when you grow up, you think this like this is just impossible. You never even think about meeting someone from Star Trek, you know, like, of course, <laughs> that moment was just was just incredible. So, yeah, I will forever remember that keynote. <laughs> yes, yes, me too. One of the things that I remember impresses me to this day about that keynote was how enthusiastic and excited Anthony Rapp was about our research in astrobiology yeah. and specifically in your research in astromycology, just the passion and enthusiasm and awe that he brought to meeting you was just as amazing and fervent as your enthusiasm for meeting him. And the, the fact that they were symmetrical and reciprocal in that way just really warmed my heart. Yeah, I think that was the, the best part as well, because you had a room full of scientists, right, meeting this person, this actor. And then we were both just both sides, right, just so excited and so happy and, and with this warm feeling because we were like, yeah, science, science fiction actually feeds a lot of what we do. You know, without that, I would probably not be a scientist. I would not have my mind open to all these possibilities to now go studying mold in space. You know, who thinks of that? <laughs> so it was very good that, that also uh, Anthony Rapp actually had, you know, the time and the patience to answer all our questions and to be very also open to to hear what we are doing. That was brilliant. We should do mm -hmm. it more often, just bringing sci-fi and, and scientists together. 
I agree. I completely second that. Maybe when you and I organize a conference, we can. Yes, we should more. do that. <laughs> we have a topic already. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, Marta, let's turn to your research now. You study how fungi operate in outer space conditions. And、um, I want to first talk about a book chapter that you wrote called Fungal Biotechnology in Space. Why and how? And you write in this、uh, book chapter that fungi have been companions of mankind for millennia, and propose that fungi can become important cell factories for life in space, especially regarding the filamentous fungus Aspergillus niger, as the cutting edge must-have for space travel in the 21st century <laughs> and beyond. Oh my goodness, Marta! Of all the things that I think you'd want to pack for a long-term space mission, fungi would be the last thing that I would put on my list. But you say that fungi could be one of the most important partners in space. Please <laughs> tell me why. <laughs> Just tell me, tell me more. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I understand it would be the last thing that you think about. But there's so one of the biggest challenges in space exploration is actually resources. Right there's one that is、uh, also、uh, protecting from radiation, so this is like the biggest challenge for life in space. But in terms of human space exploration, going very far away, going to the moon, going to Mars, one of the biggest challenges is resources. Right now we have astronauts on the International Space Station that is orbiting around、uh, the Earth, but it's actually very close to the Earth still. There's a lot of commercial resupply missions that go to the ISS back and forth from Earth to the ISS. And bring food and materials and water and whatever they need. So, what happens when we go to the moon? You know, like actually having a habitat on the moon, having these resources, you cannot just go, "Hey, bring bring me something." Like it's taking two days to get there. Worse, even like when we go to Mars, what happens? You know, like, oh yeah, I need some antibiotics. Yeah, wait two years until I get there, then you're dead. So, it's it's started to to think. Okay, we need to think. About solutions, right? And one of the biggest solutions right now to to being explored is the use of microbes. So, so microbes are actually very lightweight, right? They're actually very robust. They can they can survive space travel. Some of them, and them being very lightweighted, it's actually very attractive because when you are thinking about space exploration, you want to take things from Earth out of Earth's gravity pull. And for that, you need a lot of fuel, which means the heavier your rocket is, the more fuel you will need, and it's very expensive, right? <laughs> and、yeah. you also don't want to you don't want to pack everything you need for two years, like in a huge garage. Like you cannot have you don't have the room or or the, the fuel to to get that out of Earth. So you need a solution for that. And microbes being very lightweight, it's it's actually very good. Like with a handful of of rice, which has some fungal spores inside. Uh, you can actually have a lot of fungal spores, and then once once you are in space, once you are in a space habitat or in a moon habitat, you can actually from this small amount of spores, you can actually grow more. You can grow them and make them, you know, actually have a small factory where they can produce antibiotics. They can also mine the lunar soil. They can actually extract minerals from the lunar soil, and then you can have like a Powder of the minerals,、uh, like aluminium, for instance, that you can use them to to maybe three D print something. I don't know. So it's kind of like completely amazing to to think that you know just from one fungi. So this this fungi、uh, fungus Aspergillus niger, it's very used right now in industry. There's like millions of euros or dollars put into into. Growing this fungus to actually produce a lot of these compounds, even plastics they can produce, and it's a cellular machine. There's like very complex machinery in terms of molecules and the genes that they have, and you can kind of fine tune that into producing basically whatever you want. So anything you can think about, you can almost for sure you can fine tune the fungus to produce, and this is very interesting. Like it's flexible. It's easy to grow most of the times, and and you can basically produce whatever you want. So, yeah, why not bring a piece of mold with you to to the moon or to Mars? <laughs> Amazing! This is like 
you know, utilizing one of nature's best engineers. And I would have never guessed that one of nature's best engineers was a fungus. But apparently, like you said, it's used all over industry and could be super useful in space because of its well, for one, lightweightness and its ability to adapt to space environments. So that's been another line of your research, trying to understand how this particular fungus can survive in outer space. And so in a study published in Frontiers of Microbiology in 2020, and another in the same journal in 2022, you found that the spores of Aspergillus niger are highly resistant to space radiation and that they grow in microgravity. Tell us about these studies. How did you do them? What did you find? And what are their implications for space exploration? <laughs> yeah, so one of the biggest challenges, as I said, is space radiation. And this is impacting astronauts, of course. Astronauts cannot really stay much longer than six months, one year in space, because if not, the radiation can really start to damage your own cells. And when we think about space travel, there's also this thing of planetary protection, right? Like, can our microbes, if we go to the moon, can our microbes also go to the moon and survive space? Or if we go to Mars or we send a rover to Mars, can the rover take some microbes with the rover and then contaminate Mars? And we really wanted to know, in this sense, if... Aspergillus niger spores, because spores are very resistant. They are known to resist very extreme conditions, temperatures. Um, we wanted to know how resistant are they? Could they survive space travel? Could they survive from here to Mars, for instance? And what we did was, was exposing them to different radiation types. So in space, radiation is in a lot of different forms. It's ultraviolet radiation, like the one we have from the sun. It's also X-ray radiation, which also comes from the sun. And then you also have cosmic radiation, which are different particles that come from like remnants of supernova explosions, for instance. They are uh, also uh, very hard to, to shield. And so we expose them to these different kinds of radiations with very high doses of radiation. And what we found was that the spores actually survived. Of course, this was like a one hit dose, you know, like, okay, let's see if they survive. It's not like a long term, low dose kind of thing, but they survived and they survived very high doses up to a thousand gray, which is the dose we use for cosmic radiations, for instance, and x-rays. So... How incredible is that to think that spores, like fungal spores, just put them on a rocket, stick them in a rocket, send them to Mars. When they go to Mars, they will survive. And this is mainly because they actually, so the spores have very thick cell walls and they have a lot of pigments around. Um, you asked me to bring some visuals. I don't know if we yeah, should please. share them now. Or, yes, uh... <laughs> I would love that. Yeah. Sorry, I was like, okay, maybe we should start with the visuals. <laughs> Uh, let me share my PowerPoint. Can you Ooh, see it? Yes, yes. I see a mycelium network. Okay. And you see my mouse? No. I do, yes. Mm -hmm. Ah, perfect. Yeah, so this is like fungi on the space station. <laughs> 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 Yay. So they basically took that panel out and took them off board, you know, to burn into atmosphere reentry. Hmm. And this is kind of what a colony of mold like when you look at a mold in a wall or something you see this and this is how they grow in a petri dish for instance and if you kind of cut a slice out of this uh, fungus you what you see is this is like a huge mycelium network here that they use to actually attach to the walls and attach to the agar of the petri dish and then they have these structures here that form the spores and you can see here the mycelium network is a very interconnected complex full of cells. Every small round thingy is a cell. And what is interesting is that they also form these spores. And these spores, here you see they are very black. And they have all this pigment here in the cell wall. And one conidia for one of these heads of piece of mold forms all of these spores. And the higher they go, here, the easier it is to release these spores into the environment. So they can form millions of spores and then they go all the way through the air. They can easily release and disperse to then, you know, attach different surfaces, colonize different habitats. You can inhale them. And usually your immune system is totally fine with that. But this was uh, what we tried to, to kill. So these spores. 
So the thing is that we wanted to know if they uh, survive space travel, so from here to Mars. And then this is also impacting like radiation and extreme temperatures. And what we did uh, in one of the experiments was actually sending Aspergillus niger spores, these this ball spheres. Uh, we actually send them on a balloon, on a scientific balloon in a mission uh, together um, with NASA. So it was a DLR-NASA collaboration. And we send them to the stratosphere uh, for five hours, uh, 38 kilometers altitude. And we had temperatures varying from minus 51 degrees Celsius to plus 21. And what is interesting is that this stratosphere is actually a Martian analog. So if you think of Mars at the equator, it has a very thin atmosphere, but it also has ultraviolet radiation levels that are very similar to the ones we find in Earth's stratosphere. So it's crazy. Of course, it's not the same thing as sending, you know, a bunch of spores to Mars and seeing if they survive. But it's a very valuable analog, which is way cheaper, <laughs> is way faster, <laughs> and is way faster to achieve. So what we did was actually putting these spores. We tested two different things. So here you see the spores. Like imagine this as being attached to a rocket, for instance. Could be that you have a lot of spores and you have like a bunch of them on top of each other. Or it could be you just have one or two. You know, what is the best way? Would they survive just if they're like protecting each other, you know, group? Um, or would they survive if there's just one spore very lonely traveling to Mars? Would it survive? So we put them in these disks and we actually put them in this vacuum chamber that we then filled with Mars gas, with Mars artificial atmosphere. And then we put them on the balloon. And one of the cool things is this video. You can see the video? Yes, it's playing. Oh, it just opened and it's exposing the spores to the radiation. Yeah, so this thing is a scientific balloon. Here is the payload. Here is the Mars box box with all the different, uh, we tested different microbes, but one of them was, was this fungus, Aspergillus niger. And once it reached 38 kilometers altitude, it opened the shutter to expose them to all the radiation. So there's this glass that is not filtering any of the radiation. And then it stayed there for like five hours roaming around the stratosphere. And then when it was ready to go down, uh, the shutter closed. So we have for sure like five hours of intense radiation. And then the balloon went down and we recovered the samples and, and see if the spores survived or not. So what we found was actually that even like lonely spores not protected with each other, the, in the top layer, which is this one that is here being exposed to all the radiation, they actually still survive. They have a bit of, so this is survival here. They survive a lot. And here, for instance, they don't survive as much, but there's still a lot of cells, a lot of spores that could actually survive. And this, of course, this we kept some of the spores in a lab and some of the spores on uh, the bottom layer that didn't have any radiation, but they actually survived, which is crazy. So what I see from this is basically uh, the lab control for the survival and the bottom layer are fairly similar. So the spores that were on the bottom buried underneath other spores basically didn't get harmed by the radiation at all. No. And some of the ones on the top layer did, but there were still some that survived. Um, and that's that's pretty impressive. Yeah. And what you can see from here as well is that the bottom layer pretty much still has Mars atmosphere, and it was still exposed to the variation of temperatures from minus mm -hmm. 51 degrees Celsius to plus 21. So imagine there's spores on Mars, but shielded by some kind of soil, you know, mm -hmm. or, or from the rover. They're like on the bottom of the rover. They would be okay with living on Mars, well, living or at least existing on Mars. Whether they reproduce <laughs> afterwards, this is a different story, but at least they would survive. So yeah. if you would go there and, and try to detect some life, maybe you would find a spore. Who knows? Yeah, this is uh, really incredible. Did you have any other um, figures and animations to show us? or? Um... So that's pretty much it. Okay, and I also great. had this, which I forgot to show you. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, Paul Stamets, <laughs> Protostaxides Deleviatory. Uh, that's great. So this is actually a slide that you would show during some of your scientific talks? 
No, but I will show them from now on. <laughs> I will show, show this slide. Okay, yeah. for, <laughs> special for virtual TrekCon, everybody. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I love it. The real prototaxities is what we're seeing here on the uh, right-hand side. Is that right? Sort of like an artist impression of what they would yeah, actually look so like? Yeah, so this is kind of the closest to, to the fossils that they found, which was a pretty big fungus. And in the beginning, they didn't know if it was a fungus or if it was a cyanobacteria or a plant. And this is the Arctic uh, impression. And there's two videos that I think really explain like what they think it was. So that was pretty. that was pretty nice. How big did it get? It looks like it's quite large in these uh, artist yeah, depictions. They set up to nine meters, I think. Nine meters. There were wow. pretty much no trees back then. Or they were like bushes, but not very big trees. And fungi really dominated. And I guess the reason why they're growing so high is so that, like you said, the higher they get, the better dispersal of their spores. Exactly. Exactly. So imagine a bunch of spores just going wind of spores <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah wow good, good thing there were no humans back then <laughs> <laughs> incredible yeah 400 million years ago no trees no humans it was a fungal world i guess it was a fungal world amazing amazing i would love to see a world like that in star trek discovery just yes. just populated by, by the fungi <laughs> maybe the home world for prototaxity celebratory oh that would be great exploring that home world <laughs> yeah great okay well thank you for bringing these um excellent uh visuals that really helped i think explain the science and your research in particular uh, I just have a few last questions for you, Marta. Um, you know, you, you mentioned how you've discovered how radiation resistant these fungal spores are, how they can survive Mars-like conditions. What do you think the implications are for the idea of panspermia, that life could hop from one planetary body to another, not necessarily like on our rovers, which you said it can probably do, but just like seeding other worlds with life and starting biospheres from an asteroid that was blasted off one planet with life and then brought it to a completely new barren world and, and gave it life. Yeah, so I think as we are now studying more and more microbes and we understand that they're actually very resistant, maybe way more than we ever imagined, as humans are very vulnerable, we are fragile compared to microbes. <laughs> <laughs> Shame on us. So... <laughs> Yeah, I think it's it's really an hypothesis that is worth considering. So, of course, we cannot prove it yet and maybe never. But um, knowing how resistant these fungal spores are or even other bacterial spores and, and knowing also how planets are formed, that our solar system also had a lot of exchange. You know, we had a lot of uh, asteroid collisions and then you have a piece of rock that goes away and is beamed off um, and can actually bring a lot of this organic material. We also know that a lot of asteroids have organic material already, whether there's microbes or complex life and complex, when I mean complex is actually like a cell and a fungal spore <laughs> is, is very complex. I, I'm not meaning like a little green man or something, but asteroids and commons have organic elements. And, and this means that there is a possibility there's maybe some life form, at least a very primitive, a very minimal cell with some DNA in it. And, and this is something chemists and biologists and biochemists are, are exploring a lot. And the more we also, you know, explore and develop technology that helps us go to other planets and, and go to these asteroids, you know, land on the comets and take samples and see what's actually there. And this is where it gets really exciting because we are there now. We are there. We can actually send stuff, land, take samples, read them out, you know, and, and find, oh, yeah, there's an amino acid here. Amazing. Like amino acids, this is what our proteins are made of, you know, and we can find them somewhere in space. So this, of course, brings the question, like, why not? Why not some life just going from Earth and all the way to Pluto or maybe another uh, solar system, that's maybe a bit more complicated. A lot of travel, a lot of radiation from here to another solar system. But at least within our solar system, that's, that's actually pretty possible as far as we are now understanding. And there's also this thing, this theory, right, that we all are Martians. 
<laughs> that we came from Earth because Mars geologically is like an older Earth. When we see Mars, we look at the future of Earth. So it was a bit, it's a bit smaller. So it kind of evolved a bit faster than than Earth. So what if you know there was some life from Mars that you know threw an asteroid and hit Earth and kind of seeded our world? It's also one of the origin of life theories, but. Who knows? We don't know. I think we will never know because it's hard to go back in time and be there. But it's very interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I guess in addition to a spore drive, what we need from Star Trek is also a way to time travel. And then maybe we will <laughs> find out how, how life originated on Earth or on Mars or somewhere or on else. Mars. Yeah. yeah. Um, I guess one thing that I wanted to ask, just given all of this amazing knowledge that you've uh, bestowed on us today about how absolutely incredible these spores are, how resistant they are to harsh environments, why would they be evolved to be so resilient that they could survive in space? You know, is it because of part of their fungal distribution mechanism that maybe through the wind they do get blown up into the stratosphere? And so therefore there's a selection pressure that that selects for those that can survive there? Or why are they so extreme tolerant? <laughs> yeah, well, if I knew 100% the answer, then I wouldn't need my job to investigate. <laughs> but, but there's a lot of possibilities, right? One is what you said, like evol evolution-wise, they, they were kind of selected uh, and pressure to actually evolve these ways of, you know, repairing their DNA very efficiently to have these pigments around the cell wall so that they can resist radiation. But what we also know is that, for instance, the pigment, the melanin, the same pigment that they have in the cell wall, the same pigment, well, a bit different, but the same pigment that we have in our skins and help us also not get sunburn. It's the pigment that the spores have and helps them resist radiation. Uh, but this same pigment is also the, the molecule that helps them resist and communicate with plants. Like there, there's one molecule that has different roles in the cell. Mm. And another thing to consider also is that, for instance, when you think about resisting harsh conditions, one of the main things you need to think about is repairing the DNA. Everything depends on how well your DNA is. So if you can protect your DNA, like with this huge cell wall uh, and the pigments, then your DNA is not going to get damaged and you will survive. But if your DNA gets damaged, then you need to find a way to repair it. And these repair mechanisms that fix the DNA after it's damaged by the radiation, they can also come from other places. They can come from you know, resisting very high temperatures very high temperatures also can damage your DNA. And maybe they evolved in some way, you know, with very high temperatures. And then it's like by chance that they actually resist radiation. Or most likely it's also because of, you know, dispersing through the atmosphere, reaching these high levels of radiation, the higher you go, you know, if you go up the stratosphere, you don't have ozone layer anymore. Your protection to the radiation just finishes there. So if they found a way to disperse, especially in this very ancient world, you know, the Devonian period, 400 million years ago, they would have to survive radiation for sure in order to disperse. So it's very interesting. Yeah, absolutely. What amazing creatures. And I think what you were getting at in, in your answer to my question was this idea of exaptation, right? That perhaps the, mm. the evolution of uh, one function or, um, uh, you know, like you were talking about the, the heat resistance could then also serve another function, which is radiation resistance. Um, that's, yeah. that's super cool. Well, Omarda, you know, I, I really hope that the Star Trek writers are listening right now and are getting so <laughs> inspired by you that they will name a character after you in Star Trek, just like they named someone after Paul Stamets. If that actually comes to pass, what would Lieutenant Marta Cortesau study in Star Trek? What kinds of science <laughs> questions would wow. you like to ask in the Star Trek universe? Yeah, so first of all, if you do that, <laughs> you, the writers, <laughs> I, I would die of happiness. But I think I would love the character to actually be like, of course, an astromycologist that goes in different worlds and explores uh, the potential of fungi and then has all these different gadgets, fun technology gadgets 
with all the different things and potential that fungi have. Like imagine, like find out a fungi that can cure a very weird alien disease or that can produce food whenever you need it, you know, or maybe even, you know, finding out what fungi can do, but maybe they can also have a spacesuit made out of fungi because they protect so well from radiation. Maybe there's like a, the best spacesuit ever is like designed by Lieutenant Marta Curtzon. That would be great. <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> I love it. I mean, basically that's what you're doing already. So, I mean, I've got to hand it to you. You are living in Star Trek right now <laughs> by studying <laughs> astromycology. So... That's so cool. You know, I'm sure that everybody watching this is going to want to keep up with all of your cool research and all of your great science communication. So uh, my last question for you, Marta, is where can people find you on the internet? Well, you can find me pretty much everywhere. So Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, ResearchGate also, uh, <laughs> and Twitter. So either Google my name, Marta Curtizan, or Space Microbes. Uh, also a website, spacemicrobes.com. And yeah, so anything, drop me a message. Great. Thank you so much for being on Strange New Worlds. This has been a long time coming. I learned so much from you today and just had a blast. So thanks again. Thank you, Mike, for having me. It was my pleasure to be here. And thank you all at Virtual TrekCon 4 for watching this special video episode of Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. We'll see you all out there. Thanks again to Dr. Marta Cortesau for being my hero and giving me that conversation I've always wanted to have about the mycelial network and astromycology. I hope you learned as much as I did by listening to her. I remember when Discovery came out six years ago. I was pretty skeptical about the whole mycelial network thing. I mean, really? Fungi as some of our most valuable partners in space exploration? <laughs> but Marta has completely changed my mind. Her work shows that fungi could turn out to be indispensable in enabling our future in space, from manufacturing useful chemicals, to providing shielding from radiation, to recycling biomass. There may not literally be a mycelial network superhighway that we will ride to distant regions of the cosmos. Nonetheless, fungi may help pave our way to the stars. And that shouldn't be a surprise at all. I mean, when we take a closer look around us, we see that fungi are intimately intertwined in every aspect of our lives, right here on planet Earth. Thanks again for listening to Strange New Worlds. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider telling a fellow Trekkie or science fan about our show. We have some pretty exciting episodes planned for just around the corner, so make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow the show on Twitter at Science of Trek and myself at MikeY, M-I-Q-U-A-I. Until next time, see you out there.